Good to see each of you here at Community this evening, and thanks so much. It means a great deal to all of us, your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you've made the effort to be here again this evening. God bless you. I'd like to ask if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter number 10. We're going to be actually reading two texts of Scripture this evening. So this first passage found in Luke's Gospel is relatively brief. The 10th chapter of Luke, we're going to begin reading in verse number 38. And then we'll be flipping over to the text you see up there on the title page, Mark 14. But first, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Here the Bible says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. All right, so then just back a few pages to Mark chapter number 14. If you would turn there, I'd love for you to be able to follow along, and we'll sort of stay here and depend on some of the verses that we'll have on the screen where we need to refer back to the story in Luke. But we'll begin reading in verse number 1, Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there should be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads and we'll pray and seek the Lord's favor. Father, we are thankful here this evening for another opportunity to gather. We are grateful for the freedoms that America yet afford us. America yet affords us in order that we might do this without any fear of government interference or government repression. We're well aware of the fact that there are many, many people around the globe that don't have this privilege, and we also confess and ask that you forgive us because so often we take free assembly and the plenitude of Bibles and Christian fellowship and all the amenities that uh, are here for our worship this evening to enable us to come into your presence with greater facility. We take those things for granted. So we're reminded of your word which tells us to redeem the time, knowing that the times are evil. 
and we, we pray that you will help us to continue doing that in the service tonight. As we come to your word, we just pray that our hearts would be open. We also come to confess tonight, Lord, that we are frail creatures and there are all manner of things that often the devil exploits in order to rob us of getting the real message that you may have for us as individuals. There are our thoughts which tend to wander. There are bodily infirmities which make us tired, all kinds of things. But your power is greater, and so we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit tonight, and for the power of your word to be evident in each of our lives. We thank you that you know us as individuals. You understand our thoughts afar off. You know our downsitting, our uprising. And so I pray, Father, that you would just suit a blessing for each person who's come tonight. May we not miss that which you have. And then I pray, Lord, you bless those that are handling our children and other venues. Uh, watch over, bless, and keep them and uh, give them a good uh, time with their children here this evening. And I also pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. For I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, this evening I'd like to direct your attention back to a series that we've been working on for a while now. It's a little unconventional because I just don't have those ongoing opportunities, but as God provides opportunities, I've sort of been interested in the fact how he has directed because it would certainly be appropriate if God's direction were so to preach something different. But I have found in a couple of cases now that God just seems to keep bringing me back to this. And so you remember last fall we, when I had two months in order to speak to you on Sunday evenings, we were looking at a series that I had entitled Women Facing Adversity. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it, to look into the lives of these Bible characters. That, to me, is one of the most enjoyable parts of the Scripture. I mean, if you came to me and asked me, what is your favorite book in the Bible, I have a hard time. It's, I, over the years, I've had people ask my wife, what's his favorite hymn? Well, I can answer that, but it's with difficulty that I do that because I like so many. And the same thing is really true of the Bible. There's so many wonderful places to go. If I had to choose, I would say the Gospels. And I just, I love these stories. And if I had to choose in the Old Testament, I'd probably choose Genesis because I just love the stories. And I like to think about the characters in the Bible. So it's just sort of been interesting as God has directed this way. Let me kind of get you back up to speed if I might take just a moment for this. So you remember we spent multiple weeks because we were looking at the book of Ruth, but really talking about Naomi. And the adversity or challenge that Naomi faced was bitterness. And then we went to Rahab and saw that she faced the challenge of shame. We looked at Deborah and saw that she struggled with lagging leadership and most particularly lagging male leadership. We looked at Hannah and found that she struggled with barrenness. We looked at Rachel. That was actually on Christmas Eve, but you know, you have that wonderful text in the book of Jeremiah that talks about Rachel weeping for her children because they are not and would not be comforted. And so we use that text on that evening when we gathered for the, for the evening service that Christmas Eve. The problem there is loss, as that text underscores, and the New Testament writers tell us there was a fulfillment, Matthew does, of this and what happened when Herod gave that awful decree that all the children under the age of two would, would die in order to try to hopefully catch the Christ child in the net. Didn't work, obviously. Now in March, when I had an opportunity, we looked at Jochebed. That's not your everyday household name, is it? But she was Moses' sister, and so we looked at that story and found Jochebed, to, or rather Moses' mother, sorry, found her to struggle with crisis. What was she going to do when Pharaoh said, well, if you have a 
a girl baby, that's fine. But if you have a boy baby, you cast them out. What are you going to do? And so she was facing crisis. Now, you've already figured out, based on what we read this evening, that we're leapfrogging over into the New Testament. That doesn't mean that there are not a whole slew of other women in the Old Testament that could be talked about. It just means this is how God led insofar as the message this evening. Our subject, as you see there on the title, is Mary of Bethany. It might interest you to know that when you bring up the name Mary, and by the way, I have a sister named Mary, <laughs> but when you bring up the name Mary, you really have six people in the New Testament that you could be talking about. That's just kind of a little item of significance because it's important for us to, to distinguish correctly which Mary we're talking about. There are six of them. I'm not going to worry with naming them all off for you except to kind of go from the gamut of the most well-known, who's obviously Mary, the mother of our Lord, to a woman who occurs, her name occurs one time in the Bible. You find it in Romans chapter 16. There's a Mary mentioned there to whom the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Romans and has that catalog of people that he wants to greet, includes her in that greeting. This woman by the name of Mary, we don't know another thing about her. Lying somewhere in between, fairly well-known but not as well-known as Mary, is another woman by the name of Mary of Bethany. And the reason that it's important, I think, to give her this designation instead of just calling her Mary is because that's the normal way that the Bible would distinguish between people who had the same name. So think for a moment, uh, if you, you read John's account of this, you would encounter Judas. And when we think of Judas, we think of him uh, as Judas Iscariot. Why do you do that? You do that because that was the town he was from, and it was just a simple Bible way of acknowledging, okay, lots of people by this name, here's the one we're talking about. Of course, he later became also known as the traitor. Um, in our story tonight also, you have a man by the name of Simon. Well, how many of those are there? So this particular host is, is called Simon the leper. Undoubtedly, he was someone who had been healed of his leprosy. It would not have been possible for them to gather like this if he still had leprosy. He may have been someone whom our Lord healed and probably was quite well known to the people in the story, but Simon the leper just becomes a, a, a convenient way to distinguish him from other people who have that name. Who are we talking about tonight? Well, we're talking about Mary of Bethany, and we call her that because Bethany was the village in which she lived. Lots of times in the course of describing this family, I just like to call them the Mary, Martha, Lazarus fam family kind of know those three Bible characters, don't we? They were brothers and they were sisters and brother. And I don't know where your age ranking falls in all of this, but these are the people and they lived in a little place called Bethany. Now, they had a reference in the morning text in John to Bethany, but the scripture says that was beyond Jordan, not this place. This place is close at hand to Jerusalem. In fact, it's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, which probably places it it's in decent walking distance from the, from the big city, Jerusalem that is, probably about two miles away. So they live close at hand. So in this place where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 14, we're actually in the Holy Week or the, the week in which our Lord was betrayed and crucified. And that Tuesday evening, they were in the house of Simon the leper. It was enough, close enough to the city of Jerusalem that they could retire there Jesus had had quite a day of controversy, if you know anything about Tuesday, which was what, it, what is described here by Mark. Tuesday evening would have actually been the Jewish Wednesday. But if you know anything about this, you know that uh, 
that, that would have been a convenient location for him to retire, that day of controversy in which all of those parables that we have about his interactions and difficulties with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It would have been a, a very nice occasion that's described for us in this text tonight that he could have retired to, Jeru- uh, to Bethany and been a house guest with people that he knew very well. Uh, undoubtedly, Simon was such a person, but certainly Mary and the disciples were also there. This is the person that we're talking about. Now, let's just do a little bit more by way of introduction, and we'll try to quickly get into the message. You find Mary, the the person who is the subject of our message tonight, you find her basically in three scenes in the Bible. So if you're looking for, okay, I want to get all the information that I can, you're basically looking in three different scenes, not three chapters. It's more than that because you have multiple accounts of some of the incidents, but uh, of, of one of the incidents, the main one, but you have, roughly speaking, three. One of them is relatively minor, and the only reason that I say that is because really the predominant character there is Martha. That would be John chapter 11. You know John chapter 11? John chapter 11 is the chapter in which we have the account of Jesus raising Lazarus, the brother of these two women, from the dead. So, That chapter is also famous for that that discourse. Martha is kind of the key figure who is under consideration there. She goes and she has this interaction with the Lord, and it's a result of what she says to the Lord that Jesus gives that incredibly well-known I am saying in the Gospel of John where he says in John 11, 25, and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. You know that, right? So Mary is mentioned in connection because she also goes... And we'll look at one verse later in the story here tonight where we see that, but mostly we don't have so much to draw on from there. What we do have in the two two other scenes that we've looked at here tonight, the text in Luke chapter 10 and the text in Mark. Now the text that we have in Mark, Matthew has an account of it. That's what I said, you have multiple accounts. You also have an account in John. So why did we choose Mark? Well, two reasons. One is I didn't want to intrude on Pastor Andrew's working with John, but there's another reason too, and that is that Mark just happens to have a number of details. Actually, John mentions a couple things that neither Matthew nor Mark mention as well, so you don't have a foolproof place to go. But on the whole, if you're going to choose something other than John, I would choose Mark just because there are some details given to us here about the story that we don't have anywhere else. Now, let's ask one more question to set the stage for what we're doing tonight. So in all of this, and in what we've read, these two accounts that we have, the one in Luke, Luke is the only one who takes us to that venue, by the way. No other account of that story, only in Luke. It's kind of interesting. They're both dinner occasions. They're both supper occasions. That's kind of an interesting detail. We have the one in Luke's gospel, and then we have the one in the other gospels. What do you think ties these together? If, if you're going to talk about women facing adversity, what, what do you think you see here? And of course, you've already seen the title, so you can sort of guess this. And I think it's criticism. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit tonight. And I want to share three thoughts with you about criticism because the moment I say that we're going to talk about criticism tonight, I hope I have your attention, at least for a little while. Because I suspect there's nobody here in this room tonight that hasn't been the subject of criticism. Some of it's deserved, but a lot of it, unfortunately, is not. 
And it's just interesting to see how someone who is particularly controlled by God's grace, as we see in Mary tonight, how are they able to deal with it successfully? Hopefully you'll hear something tonight somewhere along the course of this message that will be a help and a blessing to you. And the first thing that I want us to draw on is this idea. Expect it inevitably. Now, if you're sitting here tonight, and as far as you know, everybody just loves you. Nobody ever has an unkind thing to say about you. No criticism. Enjoy the moment. It will pass. Somewhere, in some context, it will pass. And that is certainly what is going on here. Now, if we were to consider what we have read in Luke's Gospel tonight, as well as in Mark's Gospel, as a courtroom drama, then let's envision it this way. This may be a helpful way for us just to kind of catch the gist of the story and what really goes on. Let's just sort of envision this as a courtroom drama. Now, if that's the case, and you and I walk through the doors at the back of the courtroom, you and I are planning to sit in the gallery. We're going to be spectators. We're not witnesses. We're not a part of anything else. We're just there. So we're going to be in the audience tonight, and we're going to be kind of interested in what it is that we can learn as we watch the courtroom proceeding. And of course, as you know, if you walk through the two back doors or walk into the courtroom, you're going to see immediately in front of you, just like if you walk through the doors at the back of the auditorium tonight, the first thing you'd see is the platform where the pulpit is. You'd see that in a courtroom too, only that's where the judge would be, right? And to your left, you would see the table where the defense attorney sits and the defendant. And to your right, you would see the table where the prosecutor sits and maybe the, the lead investigator or the lead uh, police officer that's in, involved in the case, maybe, there. Further to the right, you'd see the jury box where 12 men and women would be sitting who would be listening to the trial. And just to the judge's immediate right, as you're looking forward from the back of the courtroom, there would be a witness box, right? So you've got this in your mind now, you've seen this before, and some of you have perhaps been at trials, and maybe you've even been to something where you've testified. I had that wonderful pleasure one time. <laughs> we actually had to go testify. But nevertheless, let's look at it that way. So we walk through the back doors, and the first thing that's going to happen, of course, is the bailiff is going to call the case. What in the world are we going to call this case? Well, we'll call this case the People versus Mary of Bethany. And the judge has called the case. The prosecutor has told the case what it is, and so the prosecutor calls his first witness. And so the first witness that we have is Martha. She's actually the sister of the defendant. And she goes to the witness box. And the prosecutor has some questions for her. So he says to her, maybe something like this, would you state your name for the record? She says, yes, my name is Martha. And any relation to anyone in the courtroom here tonight? Yes, uh, the lady at the defense table, she is my sister. And mostly everybody here tonight knows Lazarus. And so Lazarus is my brother. And so you were involved with a dinner at which Jesus was a guest at a given night in your home at Bethany. Is that right? Yes, it is. Well, did you tell us a little bit about what happened that evening? Certainly. Well, so I was there and Jesus was, of course, the key visitor, who, our key guest who was there that evening. But there were other people, too. And as the ongoing preparations for the meal continued, 
Jesus was in the outer room there, and the other guests were there, and Jesus was teaching them. He was giving them his word. I never thought anything about it, but I was in the kitchen, and I was laboring over the hot stove, and of course, I I wanted to have a really good meal that evening for Jesus and for the other visitors, and all of a sudden, I just realized I've got too many balls in the air. I can't handle what's going on here, and I looked around, and I I understand one reason why I, I have no one helping me. There's no one here. And so it, all of a sudden it dawned on me, I, I thought that my sister would have helped me with this, and so I walked to the door of the kitchen and looked out into the room, and I saw my sister, she was sitting there at Jesus' feet, just like the other people were in the room, and she was listening attentively to what Jesus was saying. Oh, so in other words, you felt like you were left alone, is that right? Yes, it certainly did feel that way. So you felt like you were neglected, is that so? Yes, that's definitely true. Maybe even to say and go so far as to say that you felt as if you were abandoned. Look at how it's characterized for us in Luke chapter 10. don't know if I have this. Yes, look at that verse right there. You don't have to turn. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister, look at this characterization of what's going on has left me to serve alone. Well, there's no cross-examination from anyone at the defense table, so the witness is dismissed. The judge says, call your next witness. Prosecution calls Judas Iscariot. And Judas comes to the stand, and you say to yourself, well, I didn't read anything about that. Well, John's Gospel tells us that Judas acted as the main spokesperson on this occasion. And so Martha has accused Jesus of neglect. And what is it that Judas accuses Mary of? He accuses her of waste. So would you state your name for the record? Yes, my name is Judas. I come from a little town called Kerioth. Would you tell the court today what it is you do for a living? Well, before I did thus and so, but for the last three years or so, I've, I've been a disciple of Jesus. Everybody knows Jesus. I've been a disciple of Jesus, and I followed him. And do you have any particular duties that you do as a disciple? Well, you know, Jesus sends us to different places, and we preach, and sometimes we work miracles, this type of thing. You know, we, we carry on the ministry, and, and we're also his disciples. We, we learn, and we follow Jesus. Well, in the apostolic, or in the the company of the disciples. Is there any particular function that you have, any particular job that you have? Well, yes, in fact, there is. You can kind of see him now with a little pride as he answers this question. I'm actually the treasurer for the group. I carry the purse. I carry the bag. And so, oh, well, tell us how that works. Well, you see, it works this way. See, none of us, we all left our jobs. We don't do like Peter and those guys. They were fishermen and we all left our jobs. We don't do those things anymore because we're full-time disciples and followers of Jesus. So we basically are able to subsist on the free will offerings that people give to us. And there are a number of people who contribute. So when people contribute, I, I have the purse, I have the bag, I keep, I keep the money in it, and I, I disperse the funds, whatever it is that we need or Jesus sends us to get. Okay, well, that's good. So would you tell us what happened then on the Tuesday of the Passover week? Certainly. Well, we were all invited to a place there in Bethany. And Simon the leper, you know Simon, right? Because 
kind of like Lazarus, he, he was healed, and you know that's kind of a that's a remarkable thing to happen in Bible times because there really is no cure for leprosy. So, you know him, right? And he was the host, and Martha was there. You you know her. She just testified here, and so she was there. And and of course the disciples were all there, and other people perhaps were there. But he says that and. And it was, it was a dinner occasion. And there we were, we were all comfortably reclining. And of course, you notice how it's translated for us here when it says this in, uh, they were reclining at tables in effort to reflect to us the custom of how they would, would eat and dine in the Bible times because it's not quite like us pulling up a chair to a table. They would sort of recline in a comfortable manner. They might brace their head on a hand like this or there might be pillows or cushions that they would use, but they would recline on the, what we would think of as the floor or on a couch of some kind, and that was the position they ate from. I never much caught into that. But somehow it, it sounds like it worked for them, but that's what they did. Oh, we were all just reclining and, and having a wonderful meal, and all of a sudden this woman came in. And I noticed right away that in her hands she had a flask alabaster you know the the kind of flask that you would commonly see used for perfume that type of thing something that needed to be contained something that would 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 not let the 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 pungent quality of the this is like a like an oil uh, an essence oil it would not let it escape in any manner and i saw that she had this alabaster flask in her hand and all of a sudden she she came forward and she put herself into a position where she could come to where Jesus was, and all of a sudden she snapped the neck of the flask, and she moved forward, and she began to pour down on Jesus' head the contents of that flask. And she saved enough, and then she moved back to where his feet were. We picked this up from John's Gospel and his account. She moved back to where his feet were, and then she poured the, the remaining contents of the flask onto his feet, and then, unbelievably, as if it wasn't enough what she'd already done, unbelievably, she let her hair down. Very uncommon for a Jewish woman to do that. And she dried his feet with her hair. And there was something about this that bothered you. Is that correct? Well, yes. I mean, she had this flask, and it had about 12 ounces in it. John's Gospel says a pound, but when you look up the term in the original, the Greek word has the idea of about 12 ounces worth. It had 12 ounces of pure nard. Pistic nard is the term from the original, and probably this adjective pistic is the idea of pure. That is, it was absolutely unadulterated. It, it, do you realize what that kind of thing is worth? It, it was worth 300 denarii. Now, let's think about this for a moment, because what does that really mean? Well, we know from Scripture that the denarius was essentially what someone, an average laborer's wage for a day's work. So take out 52 Sabbaths in the year, take out for some other days of feasts or whatever, and you essentially have what was worth, what it would take an average person at minimum wage, something of that nature, a year's worth of labor is what this is worth. Why was it so valuable? Because they got it from India. It was very rare. It was very difficult to obtain. And spices, of course, were a trade in the Orient. And I was just aghast. I just absolutely aghast, especially as someone who kept the purse, especially as someone who really understands 
the value of money, that someone would take something like that, of such a worth as that, and the whole thing was just basically wasted. Well, when we think about these accusations, so here's the verse from John, Judas Iscariot says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? When you think about this particular charge, the charge is waste. And, you know, we think about this in, in our day. Let's think about what we've seen so far, and we'll kind of draw this point to a conclusion. So neglect is fairly serious, but, you know, you and I are in the gallery, and so we're not a part of any jury or anything, but we're, we're kind of listening to all of this go on. And some of these people we know, and we're kind of thinking to ourselves, eh, there's just something about this that doesn't sound right. I mean, Mary, is the problem really that her sister, that Mary, is the problem really that she intended to neglect or abandon her sister? Or is it mostly just that she was feeling sorry for herself? And in the case of Judas, who acts as the spokesman, Mark tells us certain of those who were there, Mark's a little more genteel, doesn't mention any names. Matthew's gospel tells us the disciples. Basically, Judas, he's a scoundrel. We know that. And John told us that he was really not so much concerned about the poor as he was. He was a skimmer. That is to say, he had the money, and so occasionally he just dipped his hand in the till a little bit. But Judas doesn't come across as really so aggrieved that this ointment was poured on Jesus' head and his feet as much as He's embarrassed, just like all the rest of them are embarrassed at this unabashed expression of love and piety and devotion on the part of Mary. Beloved, what have I said so far and what point am I trying to make? Basically just this. If you decide and determine in your heart that you love the Lord, and to the best of your ability you want to serve the Lord and you want to express that love and devotion for Him, sooner or later, you will be misunderstood by people, sometimes family, sometimes even people who are close to you. And you will be criticized by others, many of whom are essentially doing it not because what you're doing is wrong, but because they're embarrassed by their own lack of dedication in comparison to what they see. You can expect it inevitably. You may have heard this story before, but it's one of my favorites. I've never told it here. I wouldn't be surprised if it's been told, but it's a good one to make this point. You know the story of William Borden? He was born in 1887, and he, even when he was born, he born into the family, he was the, the heir of the basically the, one of the wealthiest and most powerful families in Chicago, and he would have been the heir of the uh, Borden Dairy Estate. Graduated from high school at, from a prestigious Chicago High School at the age of 16 in 1904. And how about this for a graduation present from high school? His parents gave him a trip around the world. Well, they were a little prepared, and perhaps Borden himself didn't really anticipate what was going to happen because in the course of this trip, God began to work in his heart. God really burdened him. As he passed through Asia and the Middle East and Europe, he just began to sense that God was burdening his heart for the people the unreached masses. And he determined that God was calling him to be a missionary. And he, and he wrote back home and he told his parents about this. And one of his friends 
who heard what he was planning to do, gave this particular characterization of his decision. He said he's throwing, his, he's throwing himself away as a missionary. Nobody really knew this until later, but at that particular time when God burdened his heart about that, he made, it, they made that decision. He wrote two words in the back of his Bible, and those two words were no reserves. Well, he went on to prepare himself, and he went to Yale. And of course, when he graduated from Yale, he had all kinds of lucrative job offers. He turned them all down. He even had people who asked him if he would be a pastor at that particular church. He turned that down. And again, this didn't come to light until later, but it was as that was unfolding in his life that he wrote two additional words in the back flyleaf of his Bible, no retreats. Went on to do theological work at Princeton Seminary, and when he finished Princeton Seminary, he was 25 years old. And he felt that he was going to China. But because he knew he wanted to work with Muslim-speaking people in China, he stopped in Egypt to become acquainted with the Arabic language. He got to Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within one month, William Borden was dead. His friend seemed to give the prevailing human wisdom that was life away. But when his Bible came back to his parents and they looked in it, they found not only the two previous entries that I mentioned, but they found that he'd written in Egypt when he contracted meningitis two additional words, no regrets. I'm just saying, I'm just telling you, if you determine to do that kind of thing with your life, whether it's in some full-time capacity or whether you just make up your mind that by God's grace you're going to be the best full-time Christian you can be, prepare for it. Inevitably, there will be those who do not understand and there will be those who criticize. Don't let it stop you. Well, we have to hasten along because we aren't done with this courtroom drama yet, but you and I are observing things and we can say, wow, okay, guess maybe that would happen to me too. Expect it inevitably. But something else we're about to learn is, is that the way to handle it is to suffer it graciously. Now, how many people can, don't do it. How many people can put your hand up tonight and say, okay, I do that all the time. <laughs> I can't even begin to get mine up. It just doesn't go down real well, does it, when people start criticizing me? And yet there's an interesting thing because the prosecution has finished its case and the judge looks over at the defense table and guess what? There's no lawyer. There's no advocate. There's no one there to represent Mary. Not only is there no lawyer there and no one to represent Mary, but guess what? She remains silent. And it's sort of eerie when you think about this because here it is, it's the Tuesday the Tuesday evening of the Passion Week, Jesus is just on the verge of his trial. And yet somehow Mary, this is just a kind of an amazing thing, somehow Mary is enabled to mirror exactly what's going to happen in a little over two to three days' time. It's amazing. How could you sit there and listen to that kind of stuff being said about you that's so unfair and so untrue 
and be so composed that you would just be able to sit there and not say a word. And yet that's exactly the way Pilate reacted to Jesus. The chief priests accused him of many things. Mark 15, 3. Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Of course, the prophet told us this too. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Beloved, I want to tell you something. I'm not saying that it's wrong to speak in your own defense. I'm not saying that there isn't a time when you would answer questions and when you would explain yourself. That certainly is the case. In fact, I even thought about, at this point, injecting a different point into the sermon. And if I were to do that, I would simply say that we should consider it graciously or consider it honestly. In other words, if people have something to say that's in criticism of our life, of our life or our actions, is there any validity to it? Is there something God wants me to hear because I need to search my heart? Nothing wrong with that. But on this particular occasion, it's kind of to miss the point. Because the real points that God, I think, wants us to see here are, first of all, her quiet grace. You can't, you can't explain this. You can't chalk this up unless somebody has sat there, which I think it's self-evident that she's already considered what she's heard, honestly. I think she knows that none of it rings true. It would be different, see, if you sit there quietly because you're guilty. It's another thing altogether to sit there quietly when you know what's being said is, not, is unfair and untrue. The only thing that can operate a person to do something like that is grace, this quiet grace. I'm asking myself, I'm asking you, how often am I that way? Or is it that my blood pressure is rising the more and more I hear what I'm hearing, my blood pressure and my color is changing dramatically with it because I don't like it. And I'm looking here at this Mary and I'm seeing just somebody who's just kind of sitting there as if she's in complete control and not worried about it at all. I would call that suffering it graciously to say the least, but there's something else. And it's, I think, what drives this quiet grace. And that is that there's a realization, there's just a kind of a quiet realization that, you know what, on both of these occasions, whether it was the supper engagement over at Martha's house, Martha's serving, or whether it was the time at Simon the leper's house, and Martha is also serving, there's somebody who's there both times, and that's Jesus. And I want to tell you something. This is something I'm looking to communicate to me and to you tonight. What he says is the only thing that really matters. Doesn't matter what I say about me. It doesn't matter what others say about you or me. Ultimately, all that really matters is what does Jesus say? That's what's so important. Kind of interesting, and I, I want to move pretty quickly here with this because I don't have a lot of time, but F.B. Meyer, the English preacher, was writing on this passage, and I think this really is, is a, a passage we have to inject at this point, where Paul says this, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or, or by any human court. 
In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden the things the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Meyer wrote about this passage, he said there's, there's four things. First is man's judgment. And I don't have time to give you everything that he had there, but he says about men, they are ever reasoning about us, comparing our lives with our professions, partly with the view of excusing themselves if there is any gross inconsistency. But after all, their verdict need not greatly move us. It is only for a day. Second, he said, there's the judgment of fellow Christians. To be too zealous, too eager, too earnest, too particular will in some Christian communities expose to a great deal of adverse criticism. But we have not to look right and left to get the sentence of our fellow believers when we are clearly prompted by the Spirit of God. Third, he says, there's the judgment of conscience. I judge not my own self. We are all apt to arraign ourselves at our own bar, pass verdicts which are altogether favorable. Because we compare ourselves with characters and standards inferior to ourselves, it is a great mistake to judge yourself. For even if you score a favorable verdict, if you know nothing against yourself, it is liable to be reversed by the decisions of the Supreme Court. That's the court of heaven. Fourth, the Lord's judgment. The Lord will come bringing to light the hidden things of darkness, making manifest the counsels of the heart. Last thought. Commit it confidently. So what do you do with this? You sat there and listened to it. In your heart, you're concerned, you're bothered. If you suffer it graciously, but where do you go with it from here? Well, you have to commit that kind of thing to the Lord, right? But you know, you and I are still looking from the gallery in the courtroom, and there's something strange going on here because the jury box is empty. There's no jurors. There's no jury. You should call that kind of trial? It's a bench trial. The judge decides. There are those kinds of trials. It's not a jury trial. It's a bench trial. The judge doesn't give a verdict. He gives a finding because he listens to the facts and then he finds. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate judge. Jesus is the one who's there on both occasions. Jesus knows it all. And so here come the findings. On the charge of neglect, not guilty. How is that? It's pretty simple, really. When you think about the charge of neglect, you realize what Jesus says in Luke's account of this. You realize that the only thing that Mary does is to accurately assess the relationship. Now, please catch this. The only thing that she does is to accurately assess the relationship between service and worship. Worship comes first. Service is a byproduct of worship. Unfortunately, most of the time, we get it backwards. We get in gear. We get all busy with all kind of service and mistake that for spirituality when in reality worship comes first and is the very foundation of our service. That pool, that deep pool of love and devotion for our Savior out of which service is meant to flow. And we reverse that so many times. 
Jesus says, she chose the best part. It won't be taken away. She looked at the situation. She didn't mean to abandon you. She didn't mean to neglect you. She made a choice. It's really interesting. I'm going to show you this just in passing. But in all three scenes, what we looked at here, that one in John where Martha is really the main character, and the one in John 12 or Mark 14 or Matthew 26, it doesn't matter. She's always at Jesus' feet. Every time you see Mary, she's always at Jesus' feet. There it is in Luke 10, 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. In that account in John 11, now when Mary came to see where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, she fell at his feet. And in John 12, 3, Mary therefore took a pound, there's your term, or 12 ounces, of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. She's always at his feet. On the charge of neglect, I find for the defendant, not guilty. On the charge of waste, well, I find for the defendant, not guilty. How is that? Can you actually say that there was not something here worth what seemed to be an exorbitant sum of money that was just basically used on one occasion for one thing and weighed against what it could have represented to help people with need? Was this really justified? Until you start to realize that Mary is possessed with an insight that, that the disciples don't have. Jesus has announced that he's going to be within, within that very week crucified. And the disciples, here's these big guys who think they're hot stuff. And they don't get it. But the lady that's always at his feet gets it. She has a discernment that they don't have and realizes that when this crucifixion that Jesus is talking about takes place, there isn't going to be any opportunity to do what I have the opportunity to do right now, and I'm going to do it. He says, she's anointed my body for the burial. And not only this, but... She selflessly gives it all to him. She possesses something that the disciples don't have. See, you look at that little detail in Mark's gospel. Look at it just real quickly in verse 8. She has done what she could. The disciples didn't have that flask. She did. Who knows how long she kept that? Who knows how long she treasured that? Wondering what would be just the right occasion for it. But she has it. And God is leading. And when she breaks the neck of that flask, that's very symbolic. Because what it indicates is that she doesn't pull out like what we're thinking. She doesn't pull out a little stopper and drop one or two drops on Jesus' head and one or two drops on his feet because i got to save the rest for me later. No. She breaks the neck because she intends to use it all. She intends to give it all. I find for the defendant on the charge of waste not guilty. John has this detail, that when she did this, the house was filled with the fragrance. I would suggest to you that that's a very pregnant statement. That this type of love, this type of worship, this type of devotion is always fragrant. It always blesses other people. And then you'll notice 
what the ESV is trying to do in bringing out the significance of this by saying, when Jesus defends her and says, she's done a beautiful thing to me, it's because it's a common word for good. But this particular word for good is, is good in the sense of that which is pleasing in the eyes of the person who sees it. And this is what, this is what Jesus is saying. Might not have pleased you guys, but boy, it pleased me. Years ago when I was in school, and I want to use this to sort of wrap this up tonight, I heard a poem that I can't imagine. There's really a better summary of a lot of what I'm talking about tonight than this particular poem. I actually heard it recited by its author. It's called Broken Things. And all the time that I had any association either with, with school or anything else with Bob Jones, the author was its chancellor. Broken Things by Bob Jones. Five broken loaves beside the sea and thousands fed. As thy hand, Lord, in blessing, in breaking, bless the bread. Men would the throngs in emptiness have sent away whose need was met with broken bread that day. A broken vase of priceless worth Rich fragrance, shed and ointment, poured in worship on thy head. A lovely thing, all shattered thus. What waste, they thought. But Mary's deed of love thy blessing brought. A broken form upon the cross and soul set free. Thy anguish there has paid the penalty. Sin's awful price and riven flesh and pain and blood Redemption's cost, the broken Lamb of God. Oh, break my life, if needs must be. No longer mine, I give it thee. Oh, break my will, the offering take. For blessing comes when thou dost break. Oh, dear Jesus, Forgive us tonight for so faltering a commitment to you. And even as we are impressed and awed by one whose commitment we have spoken of tonight, help us to admire it to the place of desiring to imitate it. And when in the course of this we find those who do not understand and criticize, help us to realize that many have taken this pathway before us. What ultimately matters is are we pleasing you. Thank you for Mary of Bethany. In Jesus' name, amen.